jingle, won't you share our love? We will build for you a hut. You're gonna be our favorite nut. We'll have a lot of little oh by golly. Then we'll put them in the follies. By jingle, said by gosh, by gee. By Jiminy, please don't bother me. Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I will be looking at uh, part uh, two of Uncle Tom's Children. Um, so I guess um, I haven't been uploading in a while. I, well, I, you probably just, I just uploaded Uncle Tom's Children 1, but there's a long gap between Law Today and, and my coverage of Uncle Tom's Children. That's because I've been on vacation. I've been on uh, winter break here in Taiwan. Um, but I have been reading, and uh, I got, I've read all of Native Son, um, and I've actually started on Black Boy already. So, you know, in my reading, we're, we're actually coming to the end of, uh, of the Richard Wright um, coverage, and I got a bunch of books, uh, Library of America books coming in, um, including like three volumes of Elmore Leonard, a lot of pulpy stuff I, I ordered, but I also ordered uh, the James Baldwin, three volumes of him. So I think we'll just go on from Richard Wright to look at James Baldwin. Um, I also have uh, three other volumes of that are related to black history. One is the Reconstruction volume I've talked about before. I was going to originally read that with uh, Du Bois, but I uh, didn't get it in time. Um, so that might be worth a look. We got a book, uh, Black Writers of the Founding Era, which I started looking at and, and reading some. There's some good poetry. There's some good uh, early slave narratives I never heard of. Petitions, letters, a lot of interesting stuff there. Um, both of those volumes are very much, um, well, actually all three of the ones I'm going to mention are, are harder to deal with in this podcast format because it's a lot of shorter works. But the third volume is African-American poetry. So those together uh, with James Baldwin and finishing up Richard Wright, I think... Uh, with a few exceptions of, of more uh, like marginal writers, really kind of completes uh, all the major black writers included in the Library of America. I guess Frederick Douglass, because there's a volume of his work with the two other slave narratives that he wrote, or the two other autobiographies, I mean. Um, so not complete, but I'm getting close. I, I think I'm getting close to the point where I can kind of say I've achieved that aspect. Um, but I, I do think after James Baldwin, I may go back to look at the black the founders and the, the black writers in the founding era, which is all about the period from like eight, 1750 to 1800. Really a period I don't know much about the writers except like Equiano and Phyllis Wheatley. I'm not that familiar with uh, those writers, but there seems to be a lot of cool stuff in that volume. But uh, you know, depending on what, how I feel, you know, it's either I'll do a little bit more with African-Americans or I'll go on and start looking at um, women writers, uh, which is something I've been eager to get back to, including um, science fiction by women and, and crime novels by women and things like that. So um, let's, let's continue to talk about Uncle Tom's Children. You know, I was struck when I was researching Native Son because that, that is, of course, a very brutal book um, in many ways and, and hard to talk about and hard to deal with. But I was struck that he was disappointed by the reaction to Uncle Tom's Children. Now, of course, there's two versions of it, so I think he must have been referring to the original version that didn't include the, the, the ethics of living Jim Crow and 
Bright and Morning Star, just the four stories that made up the original publication of the book. But maybe he was talking about the whole thing. I don't know. But um, he, he said that he was unhappy with these stories because they, they made basically white liberal women cry. You know, they were like seen as too sentimental, which is not how I took it at all. I, I did not take these stories as being sentimental tearjerkers. I, I actually found the, the first two to be quite brutal. Big Boy Leaves Home is, um, of course, it's meant to be emotional, but I don't think it's a, it's sentimental or a tearjerker. I think it's it, it's real. Uh, Down by the Riverside, maybe there's some melodrama in some of these. Like, uh, maybe they're overwritten at, at points. I, I, I don't know. There might be a criticism there. Native Son definitely is different uh, in the way Bigger Bigger's presented in that book um, than these characters. Taken together, these stories are really about resistance, and um, and they build up to it because we start with a young uh, uh, a young man being killed or a boy essentially being killed, and another one forced to leave town uh, in Big Boy Leaves Town, and then Dawn by the Riverside, we have uh, an older uh, a young young man, but 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 older, right, with a family he's got to care for and a wife that he's trying to save, facing. Um, an unwinnable situation and, and being killed by the police over that. And then in Long Black Song, we get a woman as basically her the particular pressure she's dealing with in Jim Crow and then another, her husband being killed. And I think she's even slightly older. So I, I think our characters are getting older, actually. Then we have um, uh, Fire and Cloud and Bright Morning Star. And again, the characters are getting older, so we do see like an age progression here. But in the last two, they're fully about resistance. They really are about characters challenging Jim Crow directly. Uh, and they're about like communism more directly. Uh, both of them deal with communism as a theme and the persecution of communism. You know, I've, I've read a lot of communist history in America, and I'm familiar with the socialist movements and things. and And... I think Richard Wright, who is a socialist at this point in his career, right? He's a Marxist, and later on he embraces more existentialism. I don't know how much he moved away from his socialist politics. Maybe he moved away from more like the, the movement kind of culture of communism. But the hatred towards it is something that's really palatable in these and in Native Son. In Native Son, I, I mean, I did not know that communism would be such a big theme in Native Son, but it definitely is. So... Um, I don't quite know what to make of it yet. I've been thinking about it a little bit in the context of Native Son. And I think um, maybe it's just drawn for life. Maybe that's just how like Richard Wright really is thinking about the movement and how it's being perceived by, by normie America. And maybe it's something when I read from communist point of views, their history, I, I get the sense of persecution, of course, but... I always assumed that was like from the state and from like the Pinkertons and from the, the bosses and not just a general kind of general hatred. I, I mean, I guess the point is prop, the propaganda worked, it seems, or Richard Wright seems to think the propaganda really worked and filtered down, even among black Americans who looked uh, was like Bigger. Bigger did not, in, in Native Son, does not at all like think communism is like, something you should embrace. He thinks they're just like sussy terrorists. 
But I would believe Richard Wright would think, yeah, this would have been a better approach. Um, but anyways, let's let's talk about these three stories. Um, they're all excellent. Richard Wright is excellent across the board. So it's not a it's not a question about that. It's just let's look what's in these. And like I said, the five stories together do seem to be about we see characters grow up. We see a maturation of of them. The last story has the oldest character. But they're very much about resistance uh, by the end. And we're seeing uh, now that's futile resistance in a way. You could argue that, but that's maybe the first step is the is the conscious raising and then the willingness to step up and, and resist the system. And it's going to be failure at the beginning. And these characters essentially win small victories, if any. But uh, that's the solution. So I think Uncle Tom's children overall presents a problem and a solution in a way, even if the solution is not achievable yet and remember Richard Wright dies in the early 60s you know he lives a fairly bitter life uh, he leaves America goes to goes to Paris uh, lives essentially in exile and never really gets to see you know the achievements of the civil rights movement um, so he's going to die fairly embittered I believe about the status of race relations in America and his writing has that bitterness um, and, and I think we'll have maybe a different point of view when we look at Baldwin, who, who has a longer life and a life that, that crosses over the civil rights movement a little bit more fully. So it'll be neat to have that different perspective um, from, a, from a very different writer with a very different sentiment and, and approach, a very different background. Richard, Richard Wright is very self-taught. He's very much, uh, you know, pulled himself out of like a sharecropper life that his father had like face poverty, you know, face brutal working conditions. And just through grit made it into, you know, being a, being a writer. James Baldwin had similarly underprivileged backgrounds, um, but, but had a different narrative, I think. A different life story, which we'll get to when we, when we talk about him. I, mean, I think one difference may be like Richard Wright comes from the South, but but we'll get into that later. Uh, so anyways, let's talk about Long Black Song, the third story in Uncle Tom's Children. So this one, our point of view character is a woman, uh, Sarah, and she's uh, a recent mother and she's burdened by this kid. Uh, she has some earlier love affair. Um, it's not clear if it does seem to be like adultery. It does seem to be some kind of an affair, but you know, but maybe it was before she met her husband Silas. I'm I'm not entirely clear on that, but uh, she does think about this other man often, and he's just been sent off to the war. So this is set during during World War One. If you know anything about the Great Migration, that this was a, a hard time for. Um, Black sharecroppers in the South. It was there was the a, a cotton blight at the time. That was one thing that pushed many out. But also there was like jobs in the North, so many fled for that reason and, and found better opportunities in in the North. But many many were fleeing like increased poverty conditions in the South. And of course, after World War One, that's going to hit the cotton prices even worse. So you're going to have deflation and the return to normalcy and the return to the gold standard is going to hit farmers pretty hard and if you know the story of the Great Depression that's there's a lot of history kind of vomited out there but um, that seems to be the context of this 
Um, so that's why I'm wondering like when this relationship with Tom is and when this exactly is set. Um, my, my guess is it's, 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 you know, it's earlier than, than like, uh, than like native son or even law today. It seems to be a set a little bit back in time, but clearly in Jim Crow years. So anyways, um, the kid is really burdening, burdening, a big burden for her, and she's not really happy with that, and she's just kind of going through her daily life as a housewife. It reminds us of the wife character in Law Today in a way, except that character doesn't have a kid even to take care of. But um, Now, Richard Wright, of course, had kids, and he was married twice, so um, it's probably worth thinking about how he presents women. Um, you know, Native Son... The two main female characters we have are, are victims of bigger. Um, the other, like, I guess most of the female characters are victims, if you consider uh, uh, Mary's mom. I'll, I'll get to that story later on, but in the next episode. But I don't know, like in Law Today, the woman's a victim. Here we have a victim. We do have a point of view character uh, as a point of view character. So we get it kind of from her mind partially, but... Um, I guess the last story here, Bright and Morning Sun, also has a female character, but she's much older. So, um, you know, women Richard Wright's age are, I don't want to say they're presented negatively, but they, they, and maybe this is drawn from life in his experiences, but, you know, they are presented as, as often victims of men. And, and I think there's an important, like, feminist tilt to a lot of what he writes here that's maybe not fully exposed when we focus on the racial issues because um, he's definitely quite sensitive to the double burden women in Jim Crow face as as victims of Jim Crow and racism but also victims of 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 men of, of you know gendered oppression on top of that and that could be from whites or blacks um, and that's certainly the case with Sarah here, who is being oppressed both by the family and by this white man who comes. So let's talk about the white man who shows up. He's a salesman. And he's... Now, Silas, by the way, is off selling his cotton. So that's what the salesmen know that, right? I, I don't think this is explicitly stated in the story, but it makes sense. A salesman in the South would know when like, a black family like this would have cash, right? Uh which is once a year after cottons are cotton is sold, and based on what you get, you have to you have your your lien that you may have to you have debts you might have to pay. Um, if you're in that system, if you're a sharecropper, you have to give some of your crop to the landlord, of course. If if you're an owner operator, I'm not sure which Silas is here, but either way, that's the time of the year where you get your your cash and. And that's when you can figure out how much you got, how much you can spend. And if you have any left over, you can maybe spend that. And so that is the, the context of this salesman, a white salesman going to these black um, farmers. And, and she, I think it's a sheer, I think he's a sharecropper. But anyways, it doesn't really matter. The point is he knows when to target these. But um, he goes and talks to Sarah because Silas isn't there. And... She is very, she's kind of interested in him, but she, she keeps some distance, but there is some um, cordiality. There's a rapport between these two. Um, anyways, he's trying to sell her 
uh, a record player, like a gramophone, right? That also is a clock or something. Uh, a consumer device, a consumer device, which of course would have been um, in previous generations rare. I mean, Richard Wright probably grew up with very little of this in his in his house before, you know, um, when he was with his father. And of course, that was only when he was very young, but he would have had very little of this stuff. But by the twenties. You know, you start to see more consumer goods coming into the South and the rural South. And you have things like the Sears catalog. You have things like these, these traveling salespeople who can bring these consumer goods in. So this is kind of a big deal. Um, that, but she's not responsible for finances, so she doesn't know if she, you know, can afford it. And she kind of tries to avoid him um, and, and avoid making any commitment. And essentially he says, like, I'll come back later. But then he... He tries to seduce her, right? And and she immediately knows that this is super dangerous because it's 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 almost like the inverse of the of the bigger Thomas issue, where and there he he does he doesn't rape Mary, but he thinks about it and he certainly makes motions on her that she was drunk. So that's something I can we'll talk about when we get to Native Son. But here it's sort of reversed. But the, the the visceral reaction to interracial sexuality comes off immediately. So she protests, right? And um, now the suggestion that she was unfaithful before with Tom, you know, maybe there's a reputation. Maybe it's known. Maybe this salesman has a has an idea. But these are small towns, right? People know each other. Rumors spread. So I, I don't know. Maybe he's thinks he has ideas coming in. But anyways, he does make a move on her. And she she clearly says no. And at that point, it clearly becomes a rape um, where he takes her to the bedroom and, and rapes her. It's kind of off. It's a little bit off screen, but um, off the page. But that's what happens. Um, but the, the consent narrative here is pretty clear um, to me anyways. Um, but... When the husband comes back, Silas, no, he, no basically the, the, the salesman just leaves at that point. And so it's like, well, I'll be back in the morning to do the paperwork. But he leaves the grandma film behind. You know, it's a sales technique, I guess, right? Once it's in the house, people are less likely to return it. Anyway, Silas comes, or, or Silas comes back. And he immediately is a suspect. So again, that's why I think this Tom relationship was infidelity or some previous relationship she had with him. Uh, that Silas is very insecure about. So he starts being really suspicious, and then he sees the gramophone, and she tries to explain that that the salesman um, left it, and he doesn't, I mean, obviously someone left it there, but he starts to believe that she's, she had sex with him. And, and of course she was raped, but she can't admit that um, because of whatever past she has with Silas and because of the racial realities, right? It's one thing for a white woman to accuse a black man of rape. That was commonly done. Of course, a lot of lynchings were justified by those kinds of claims. But the other way around, would it be taken seriously by anyone, even if Silas believed it, which he seems not to be in the mind place, the, the state of mind to do that. Um, so here she's being literally like confined on one side by Jim Crow and the other side by the patriarchy that she has to live with in her family. Um, so... She has to like. She she he actually beats her, commits you know pretty horrible violence against her, kicks her out of the house, 
and she has to like sleep out in the garage or something, right? Or, um, but she's like desperate to try to stop Silas and the salesman from meeting the next day because she knows she's going to come. But she fails to do that. Um, and the salesman arrives anyways. And then Silas immediately thinks that this is the person who seduced his wife and shoots him, right? And then Silas is not long after a victim of, of, of an impromptu lynching as a result of him killing the salesman. Um, so this story sort of ends like the other two, but the interesting dynamic here is Actually, all three of these stories that we looked at so far in Uncle Tom's Children do have gender politics that are kind of interesting to look at. Uh, the first is, of course, a white woman coming across naked young black men, boys, essentially, right? And this becomes the justification for violence. We have uh, in, um, in Down by the Riverside, a woman dies because she can't have access. She can't have access to the transportation she needs to the hospital, and she can't get a proper hospital because of Jim Crow segregation. Here we have a woman being raped, and then her husband killed uh, as a result of the violence that comes as a consequence of that. And she's unable to be honest about what happened to her because of the realities. So, um, so I, I actually do think there's a lot of interesting gender politics in here, and I don't know if scholars have kind of dug that up, but there's it's, it's an intersectional text, if you want to say it that way. So anyways, um, a very excellent story, um, I think. Very, very quite shocking. Um, the next is called Fire and Cloud. This story... Um, has a slightly different feel. Um, here, our main character, our main point of view character, and by the way, this one's quite long. This one is 50 pages. Um, a couple, like Down by the Riverside was long too, but this one might be the longest in the group. Um, so I won't go into like page by page detail of this, but here we have, a, it's from a preacher's point of view. So we have an older man yet. His name is Taylor. And his community is facing like the the whole town is kind of facing starvation and a food shortage. And don't forget, that was still an issue in 20th century America. That was not something that America over got over. Now, I don't think there was like famines in America, but there were local localized food shortages from time to time throughout the early 20th century. Um, and it hit black communities worse. Um, and that's what's happening here, where whites are getting relief and they have the resources to buy food more than the black community. The black community is suffering starvation. And Taylor, who's a preacher, is, is essentially a de facto leader of the black community, right? And that's, of course, another thing that I think Richard Wright is somewhat interested in is, you know, the preachers becoming the default leaders. Because in the Jim Crow era, you don't have black politicians anymore, right? That, that's, at least in the South, they've been pushed out of political power by disfranchisement. Um, the Republican Party is not a force there anymore, but the black churches still are. So looking to leadership, you had to go to the churches. And that's true throughout until the civil rights movement and maybe even beyond. I think even today, right? There's a certain uh, political leadership that comes with that position of, of, of being a preacher. Now, he is meeting, Taylor is meeting with communists and with the white mayor, right? Now, the communists are pushing him to, to have big protests, have a big demonstration. 
Um, and he sort of goes along with it. He, he's kind of, Taylor starts the story as a kind of a waffly person who's trying to manage different sides and different points of view. And he's a little bit uncommittal, but he's trying to please everyone. And, and he's actually not that attractive of a character early on because he seems to be kind of wishy-washy. And like on the one hand, he's trying to please the communists and his congregation who are starving. And, he, and to some degree, he knows that they're right. But this other time, he's meeting with the mayor and trying to be appeasing their racial, the mayor and his staff's racial stereotypes about a submissive black community that's just going to do whatever he says. And he kind of feeds into that a little bit too much. Um, and the end of the story, just to jump to the end, is him standing up and being part of the protest march as a leader. And committing himself fully to resistance. Now, we don't know how it ends up. We, we imagine it doesn't end up good for, for him. Um, there are a lot of threats, and he's, he's a victim of violence even before he does that. So uh, it takes violence to get him to wake up. So all these, these stories all have violence in them, but this is one's different because the violence doesn't end with the death of the character, but rather is a motivator for uh, a certain level of resistance. Um, so anyways, uh, after meeting with the communists, he meets with the, um, the mayor and the police, and they're trying to say, well, you got to stop this march. You're on our team, right? Pat him on the back kind of thing. Like, you, you know, you're one of, you, you know, you're, you're one of the good ones, and, and you're going to stop the, those horrible communists from marching. And he's like, basically, um, kind of goes along with that too. He kind of agrees with both sides here. He's kind of uncommittal. Um, and he, he actually, much of this first part of the story is him trying to manage these two groups not running into each other because they're both at the church at the same time. Um, now, you also have uh, another black character, Smith, who is, he's like in the leadership of the church too, and he want, he he's upset with Taylor's kind of wishy-washiness about this, and he wants to uh, be the preacher because again, that's the route to political power in these communities. Um, but uh, he's dealing with so this is the struggle he's dealing with, and then he gets kidnapped essentially by the police. Um, and it's it's implied, I think it's implied it's the police, it's the sheriff or whatever, or the or the mayor is behind it. But he gets beaten almost to death out in the woods. It's a threat. They. They whip him, they, and repeatedly and say, like, you are not going to march. You've got to stop this march. Basically telling them, like, you'll be killed if you go through with this march. That's the threat, right? That's how it was done. You know, that's how these terrorists acted in those days. Um, but instead of intimidating him, it radicalizes him. I guess is the way we're supposed to read this is he realizes the full brunt of, of Jim Crow and he connects the famine or the food shortage. He connects the starvation. He connects the suffering of all the other people in this congregation to what he feels. So by being beaten down, he gets kind of put in the same position as the, the, the people around him who are starving to death. Right. And so he fully commits at that point to the march Right. And that's how the story culminates is a wonderful moment where he's he's marching, uh, you know, in the front of the group with the communists. 
there's white poor whites also in the group. That's one thing I forgot to mention is that there is it is uh, the communists are multiracial. That's 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 an issue in Native Sun too, and to a certain degree in Bright and Morning Star. The next story we're going to look at is the communists were interracial, like a non-racist group, and so they had whites and blacks, and so sometimes that meant, you know. You know, they're on the right side of history in many ways, but they're, they sometimes don't understand. The whites among the communists don't always understand what black people face. That's a big issue in Native Sun, I think. They don't understand the rules of Jim Crow. They're willing to break the Jim, rules of Jim Crow because they can, because they're, they're whites. They can get away with it more than a black man can get away with crossing that color line. Right, like in Native Sun, there's a scene where the communists... The white communists, including his employer's daughter, right? They go to a basically a black bar and hang out. Well, sure, like, but a black man couldn't go to a white bar and just hang out and say, "Oh, I'm a communist, so I'm interracial." That's that's not how it works. But it's enough to say there are white, poor white supporters and white communist supporters in the crowd. And um, and he comes to a realization. He, you know, of course, Fire and Cloud, the name of the story comes from, I think, the Pillar of Fire and the Pillar of, is it? No, it's the Pillar of Salt. Um, but somehow it's tied, it's tied to Moses. I, I got to maybe brush up on my Bible. I had to look it up really quick. Oh, yeah. So there is a, why was I thinking a Pillar of Salt? Uh, pillar of Cloud and Fire. Um, fire and Cloud. That's, so it is in Exodus. So it leads the people to the promised land. So it's like a biblical metaphor. Um, but he thinks like the like the the whipping is is the cloud of, or the pillar of fire, and the the group the mixed group is 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 cloud. I guess gray, you know, black and white mixed together. I suppose I don't know. Um, but he's he, he kind of almost sees God. He has kind of like a religious experience while in the marching, which is kind of awesome. If you've ever been in like a protest march uh, with a large group, you might feel this. I, I think it's not, uh, it's, it is an elevating experience, it seems to me. So anyways, this story is, is pretty good. Now, the last words is freedom belongs to the strong. And it's spoken in dialect. Taylor talks throughout the story in dialect, which suggests, you know, he's you know, strongly in the, the Southern black community, right? He's maybe not as educated as someone like Du Bois, right? He's a, he's a preacher in a small town. But he still has this kind of consciousness ro- raising event through the suffering of his people and his own suffering, right? I think that's the important point um, here. But we end with resistance, the protest. We know how it ends up, and we know the sheriff and the mayor are willing to use violence, so we suspect violence is there on the corner. And if there was two more pages of the story, it would be a bloodbath. But we don't get that. We, we stop with Taylor's realization of, the, of this, this moment of sol- perfect moment of solidarity, maybe. All right, then we have uh, Bright and Morning Star, the final one. This was added in the later version of of Uncle Tom's Children, um, which was published in 1940. I guess it was published in 1940 to correspond with Native Son, and this was added to it. Now, this one is a, uh, we have our oldest point of view character, who's an old woman. Um, 
both of her children are, are Communist Party members. And in fact, one is not even in the story because he's in jail. So the story focuses on, on Johnny Boy, um, who has... Now, is our main character, Sue, a communist? Um, well, she's an atheist, so that's pretty distinctive among Southern blacks at this time. Um, but her son's also an atheist. So again, that's foreshadowing a few themes of, I think, Native Son, where, you know, how religion, I mean, there's generational questions of that too in Native Son. In this story, you know, the whole family is, is, is atheist, which suggests the whole family is sympathetic to communism. And, and in fact, Sue ends up being sympathetic to communist communism. Now, the plot revolves around, again, a sheriff, the police coming, looking for Johnny Boy because he's involved in activism and raising and her, and her other son's already in jail. They're known communists by the police. And the, now, again, we have the interracial dimension among the movement, too, because there's Lem and Riva, Lem's the father, Riva's the son. So that's paralleling Sue and Johnny Boy. Um, but they're white, right? And they're warning her. They're like, oh, the police know about this meeting that's going to be having, or I think it's Riva who warns Sue. So they're all going to be arrested. So that, that means a couple of things. One is Johnny Boy is not safe going to this meeting. Um, and then also that there's an informer. And so now we get a lot of interesting racial politics kind of worked into this because Sue assumes that informant must be white. Now, it turns out he is white, but, you know, it's like an assumption she sort of jumps to. All Riva says is there must be an informant. But she's not willing to believe that one of the black Communist Party members could be the informer to the police. Um, but... Um, she tells him anything, the news, and she says, go and warn the other party members. So she's kind of an activist in her own way. She's pretty much clearly a supporter of the Communist Party, too, even though she's culturally of an earlier generation in some ways, singing like gospel music and, you know, singing from the Bible, even though she doesn't believe it, singing songs from the Bible, whatever. Um, now, the sheriff comes after... After John leaves, the sheriff shows up, comes to threaten Sue, right? And gets also, she's also the subject of violence by a white man, just like uh, the woman in the previous story. Um, but she stands up to him, right? Um, and, and she's, and this leads to the sheriff beating her. And then she actually has to, she tells the names of, of the communists she knows. She reveals the name. And now we have a crisis because now, like, the cat's totally out of the bag about the meeting, about the member list. Um, she mentions this guy, Booker, who is the um, a white Communist Party member. And and she's the only one who can warn Le Go to, go to Lem's house or warn Johnny, warn the other communists. So she kind of goes from being a sideline advocate via her son for the movement to being an activist in the movement, right? And she goes there and she seeks down Johnny Boy. But now the, 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 
the sheriff said something like, you got to bring a carpet with you when you, like he kind of says, this is where you'll find your son. Uh, that's, that's the nature of the threat. Um, he says, like, if he shows up, you know, and you come, you better bring a, or so you better bring a sheet, not a carpet. You better bring a sheet with you because he's going to be killed. That's the implication. So you're going to have to carry him back. So she uses this as a device. She takes a gun and she wraps it in the white sheet. And so when she finally does, and there's a nice harrowing moment where she, or a period of, you know, part in the story where she's in the woods and, and it, it's dark and she's looking for the sheriff. She's looking for Johnny Boy. You know, she's trying to save the day. And she's got this white sheet. It's, it must have been a good visual. I think this would be, this would be interesting to see an adaptation of in, in some form. But she comes across the sheriff and Johnny Boy and the sheriff actually asks, like, what are you doing here? And what's that sheet? And she's like, well, you told me to bring it. So the cover sort of does work and she's just covering up a, a rifle. But she watches as Johnny Boy is tortured to death um, in, in front of her. But she never like tells Johnny Boy to surrender or give up any information. And she stands firm the whole time. She waits until this Communist Party member Book, Booker comes, who was the informant, and she shoots him. And then Sue and Johnny are also shot um, shortly after that. First Johnny boy in front of Sue, and then then Sue is finally killed in the last moments of the story. This is how it ends. She gave up as much of her life as she could before they took it from her, but the sound of the shot and the Sheikah's shriek, streak of fire that tore its way through her chest forced her to live again intensely. She had not moved save for the slight jarring impact of the bullet. She felt the heat of her own blood, warming the cold, wet back. She yearned suddenly to talk. You didn't get what you wanted, and you couldn't, you, you ain't never, or you ain't gonna never get it. You didn't kill me. I come here by myself. She felt rain falling into her wide open, dimming, wide open, dimming eyes and heard faint voices. Her lips moved silently. You didn't get, you didn't get, you didn't. Focused and pointed she was, buried in the depths of her star, swallowed in its peace and strength, and not feeling the, her flesh growing cold, cold as the rain that fell from the invisible sky upon the doomed living and the dead that never dies. So that's the end. She kind of uh, achieved something at the end, I guess, a sacrifice for the movement. Um, now, I guess the fire, fire and cloud story has a similar ending. We just don't really see it. We don't see the violence. Uh, I have a hard time believing that that character, Taylor, escapes that without serious repercussions. We see those here. We see the cost of resistance. Um, but it's not a futile. It's not presented as, as a futile resistance. She does save the other party members by killing the informant and not giving up other names and not allowing Johnny Boy to give up other names. So by showing up, she probably prevented, saved the lives of other party members. Is that going to go anywhere? Well, we know from history, not directly, I guess, but maybe indirectly. Okay? You know, the communist parties were, were, you know, did help lay the groundwork for the later civil rights movement, especially the movement in the in the 30s. So I think it's a it's a pretty satisfying ending to this series of stories, as satisfying as we can get for a set of stories written, you know, in the mid late 1930s. 
right? And obviously, native sun is not going to be any better. So, you know, it's it's what we're going to have to come to expect from Richard Wright. I just think Richard Wright, you know, he's in this he's his formative years were in this nadir of race relations in the deepest depths of Jim Crow. He's not like some other later writers like like James Baldwin, for that matter, who. I guess Ralph Ellison is maybe similar generation. He's a little bit younger than than Richard Wright, I think. At least he lives longer. James Baldwin, born 1924, lived until 1987. Um, he was born in um, in Harlem, right? Which he, of course, says was a horrible place, and, and it was at the time. But it, it's it's a different experience than, than Richard Wright, knowing the South intimately. Um, and... You know, James Baldwin kind of got to see the the other side of the of the movement. So, I'm I haven't read his later works. So we'll I'll probably get to them next time. Of course, there's other identity politics going on in Richard uh, in James Baldwin's work too. Uh, I just think this brutalness is is needed in this point of history. I don't I don't think um, another narrative is possible. I, I think it makes him distinctive too compared to someone like James Waldon Johnson or the Harlem Renaissance writers who are kind of struggling with different issues. Um, this is just like, there's hopefulness in the Harlem Renaissance, I guess. You know, that maybe things are, are beginning to change. You see that in Du Bois' writing to a certain degree, but you know, I think, and maybe you see this in Du Bois' work on Reconstruction too, but by the 30s, there's a you know, maybe a little more fatigue with Jim Crow coming through in these works. I'm, I'm not sure how to fully explain it, but um, definitely we see it in Native Son. Native Son is one of the most brutal books uh, you can ever read, which I haven't read the whole thing. It's going to take me four episodes to talk about the whole book. So I might actually read this again. Um, it's in three parts, fear, flight, and fate. Um, fear, now there's a recent adaptation of, of Native Son. Um, now, the first book, Fear, is 90 pages of a 400-page book. Uh, and then Flight and, and Fate are each about 150 pages. The movie, the recent movie version, which I'll talk about a little bit more when I get there. I just mentioned it because you might want to see it. I believe it's on HBO. I, I, I have HBO Go because I'm in Asia, but on HBO Max or Max or whatever they call it now, I think you can see it. Um, that's an adaptation just of the first book, and then like the rest of the book is rushed. And if he's a vi- he's a victim of police shooting, not a there's no trial and execution like there is in the book. Much of the book is dealing with the trial and the aftermath of the murder. The movie version just focuses on the murder of Mary, and like his girlfriend doesn't isn't killed by Bigger either. Bigger's presented very differently too. It's um, not a great adaptation, but I think there's some value to watching it and considering it. There's, of course, also other adaptations. There's stage adaptations. There's an adaptation filmed in France when he was there, when Richard Wright was there, where he is the actor. He's playing Bigger Thomas, and you can see that. I think it's on YouTube. I don't know if it's public domain, so it may not stay there, but it was there recently. And, it's a, you know, Richard Wright's already fairly old by that point, much older than the character. But it's interesting just as a historical curiosity to see the, you know, the take that Richard Wright himself puts on Bigger Thomas.
you know, I don't know if it's successful. So I'm not convinced there has been a successful adaptation of Native Son yet, but um, I have watched them, so at least two of them. So they'll be maybe mentioned from time to time. So anyways, that's it. Um, but Uncle Tom's Children, great book. Uh, definitely worth reading. Wonderful stories. Um, five short stories and like a, and a little vignette introduction. Um, worth checking out now. Native Son, I'm sure many people have already read. So, um, But if you haven't, do you read it? It's, it's a wonderful book. So I look forward to spending the next four episodes talking about that book with you. So until then, thanks for listening. They sang in the pale moonlight. Oh, by gee, by gosh, by gum, by jar. Oh, by jingo, won't you share our love? We will build for you a hut. You're going to be our favorite nut. We'll have a lot of little oh, by gollies. Then we'll put them in the follies.